Hey, Devin. Hi, Cindy. Cindy. So, so nice to speak with you. Thank you for sitting down with me. Hey, my pleasure. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Good. Um, awesome. So are you ready to get started? I am. Hey, it's Kaiser. Can Hi. you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Welcome to Candidate, real conversations with women running for office. I'm your host, Devin Handy. Normally, I host Hellbent Podcast, a political commentary show that approaches current events and public policy with a heavy intersectional feminist lens. I've teamed up with Emily's List to introduce you to some of the women who are running for office in the 2018 midterm elections. Each week, we speak with candidates around a theme, and I am particularly excited about this episode. I spoke with three women about healthcare and why this signature Democratic issue has inspired them to run. Cindy Axney, Betsy Dirksen-Londrigan, and Dr. Kaiser Enneking all have stories to share about their encounters with our healthcare system and how that made them each realize that it needed important reform. The ACA is vital to many American lives, and these women truly care about making it the most comprehensive and accessible that it can be. Our leaders need to know that this topic is so important to so many people, and these women are blazing the trail to make healthcare accessible. Since we have three interviews this week, I'm going to keep this intro short. These women's stories are incredible, and I hope you enjoy the conversations as much as I enjoyed talking to these women. Our first guest is Cindy Axney. She is running for Congress out of Iowa's 3rd District. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Cindy. We are so lucky to have you. Cindy, you're running in, in Iowa. And one thing that I I learned when I was reading about your platform and, and you know why you're running is that Iowa has is dead last in number of psychiatric beds per capita. And that is obviously a function of a broken healthcare system. But can so can you speak to what your healthcare platform is and what you want to change about it? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. And yes, Iowa is in a world of hurt when it comes to our uh, programs and services for people with mental health issues. Uh, we're dead last, and you're absolutely right. Something we need to improve. Uh, listen, our, our health care issue is the biggest issue we're facing in this country, certainly in the state of Iowa. We've got a lot that we need to do here to make sure that everyone has affordable, effective health care. This is a priority for me. Uh, I often uh, tell the story about when my husband and I had our second son, who's now 14. We couldn't get maternity coverage as part of an individual plan back then uh, unless we bought a rider that cost $1,000 a month and then held it in place for at least a year before becoming pregnant. And we couldn't afford that. Yeah, so when we had our second son, uh, we literally sold our personal items on eBay just to cover the cost of those hospital bills because I had a baby in a hospital. And uh, we can't go back to a time where families are forced to make a decision between putting food on the table, keeping the lights on, or making sure their family has the health care that they need. So this, this is a priority for me. And I've said all along in my race, it's the number one issue that, uh, you know, we need to address for this country. Uh, and I want to make sure that we do several things. I want to shore up the Affordable Care Act, make sure that we've got the appropriate provisions in place that will continue to help people, keeping kids on plans till they're 26. 
Of course, no lifetime caps, covering pre-existing conditions, and making sure that we reduce the overall cost and the, the ability to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs as well. Uh, but at the same time, I'd like to open it up for a public option so people can buy into Medicare or Medicaid so that everyone can have a plan that works for them. Is, now, is health care the reason you decided to run for office? Was, was that something you saw and you said, this is unacceptable, I need to change this? Or was that just part of an amalgam? Uh, it, it was uh, it was one of the reasons I decided to run for office uh, here here in Iowa. We are seeing families literally moving out of state because they can't get coverage for their child who has a pre-existing condition. Wow. We're seeing small businesses uh, that are just starting up saying, well, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this uh, and and closing down because they can't afford health insurance here. In Iowa, we have a double mess because we've got state uh, policy on top of federal policy that not, that's not working. So in addition to the issues uh, surrounding affordable health care at a federal level, we have refused Planned Parenthood money uh, in Iowa uh, to the tune of $3.2 million, closing down four locations, leaving health care deserts. Uh, we also uh, have seen our Medicaid privatized by this Republican administration which has been just uh, horrible. Uh, it's literally life-threatening. We have people who are waiting, children waiting six months to get a walker, dragging themselves across the floor of their home so that they can get somewhere. Uh, so in Iowa, we are very much uh, under the, you know, we've been thrown under the bus, I think, from a healthcare perspective. My opponent, Congressman David Young, uh, took money from health insurance companies. He took one from Aetna, who pulled out of here as our last ACA carrier last year leaving only one to step in at rates people can't afford. Uh, and, and he voted uh, for the Republican health care bill to strip uh, Americans uh, from uh, the health benefits that they need. So we've got to get out there and protect this, and it's one of the reasons why I decided to uh, get in the race. Health care is such a, a signature Democratic issue and, and obviously such a, a big deal. What ultimately is the goal? Obviously, it is for affordable health care for all. But what do you what is the goal of the Republicans trying to repeal all of this? And you're again, I'm asking you to speculate a little bit here, but what are you fighting against? Well, well you know, I, I'm I'm fighting against big money mm-hmm. and uh, influence in in our democracy. And that's what you know, those special interests are driving the health care that we have today. Uh, and we've got to get out there and make sure that Americans have a voice in our healthcare system, not just uh, special interests, uh, pharmaceutical companies, health insurance companies who are reaping profits from us. And so uh, I think they're doing what the Republicans do best, which is protecting wealthy uh, corporations and special interests. And that's what they're trying to do with these bills. And you know what? I'm trying to do the exact opposite. I'm trying to make sure that every American has an opportunity for a healthier, happier life. Sure. It is interesting. There is this sort of conflation of some of these issues that it's health care, but health care comes along with big money, lobbyists, influence, that sort of thing, and sort of denying access to, quote unquote, everyday Americans, not just in health care, but in, in government and representation. So I, I want to ask you again, you mentioned healthcare deserts. So can you explain what a healthcare desert is and, and how it's affecting Iowa? 
Sure. So these would be areas of the state where people don't have an opportunity to go in and get the preventative care that they need. So much of our, as Planned Parenthood does, it provides services to men and women uh, with preventative care that will help them lead healthier lives. In many cases, those were the only places close by to people here in Iowa. Now we've been left uh, in many areas where people have to drive 100 miles Uh, to get to a location where they can see a provider. So that prohibits them from, you know, making sure that they've got the preventative care that they need. Uh, In many cases, they don't even have transportation to get there or certainly can't take the time off. What happens that we see a lot in, of course, Republican uh, decision-making when it comes to policy is that those who have the least are often hurt the hardest. And in this case, that's exactly what's happening. Right. And and to that decision making, like you were saying, when you couldn't get insurance for maternity care and you had to sell items on eBay and that sort of lived experience really gives you a unique insight. Do you feel like that kind of experience is lacking from representatives currently when it comes to the healthcare debate? Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, You know, I think that it's important that we send people out to Congress that have experienced these issues that understand the struggles of the constituents that they're representing. And I think understanding the issues that people are facing when it comes to the expenses with healthcare gives me a good understanding of that. My husband and I are small business owners. And in addition to the story I told you about, for the last four years, we've been told by the insurance companies here that are part of the Affordable Care Act that they're pulling out of the market and we'll need to find another carrier. So like tens of thousands of Iowans and hundreds of thousands of Americans, we're in that same boat where year after year we're told you don't have, you're not going to have access to an affordable plan um, and we've had to find a new plan with, of course, increased premiums, uh, less uh, pr- services that are provided, mm-hmm. and higher deductibles. So we're paying more year after year uh, to get less and less. And there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans facing that same fate every single day. I also want to ask you why, this might seem like an odd question, it's sort of the inverse of a question I often ask women I talk to who are running for local office, because a lot of times when you run for local office, it's because you want to affect change directly in your communities. And obviously, you are very passionate about your community. So taking a state level look at this, what, how, why do you think you can be effective at a federal level versus like a state level? What do you have plans? Do you have something in specific that you want to bring to a a federal uh, attention? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, I think women need to have their voices heard. We all know that when we have diversity in decision making, we do much better with making sound decisions that can Uh, more effectively impact people's lives. And so I think it's important that women, and I'm so grateful to see women across this country stepping up. I've had the opportunity to meet several other women uh, Democratic candidates throughout this process. I'm so excited for the women that are running. We're already talking about issues. Uh, I think that's something that women in particular bring to the table. We've, We've been meeting each other in some events Uh, over the last several months, and we've had the opportunity to start discussing how we are going to address these issues, and we're exchanging information. We're going to be able to hit the ground running and start getting things done. You know, I stepped into this uh, this race because I thought this is where I could provide the best service, uh, not just to my constituents and to Iowa, but certainly to decisions that we're making that affect this entire country. My background's in strategy, 
Uh, I'm uh, somebody who spent a decade in state government rooting out waste and holding it accountable. I'm able to go in and find opportunities where we can use taxpayer dollars better and actually deliver better services. I served under two Democratic governors here doing that, directing key strategies for the state. And I think we need to send people with mindsets like that out to Congress who understand that when a policy is implemented, the structures and the resources to support it to achieve those performance outcomes have to be looked at as well. It's a reason why a lot of policy that gets enacted doesn't come through the way that we would like it to. We don't see those outcomes. And I think that's something that we're missing, uh, those types of decision makers in Congress. Sure, sure. I, I, I love that answer. And I love that, you know, they're, I love that women are running for these higher offices because I think that a lot of times when I talk to women, they, they, I always say think bigger, right? Go go for that bigger office. And, and I think that's exactly what you're doing. Cindy, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Well, my pleasure, Devin. It's been I'm really enjoyable. Yeah, thank you so much. And I am so excited to hear your plans for healthcare going forward. So thank you again. I appreciate that. Throw, I would love to throw it out there, too. Uh, hope, hopefully people would be energized and look at my campaign at CindyAxneyForCongress.com. This is one of only a couple races in the nation where both Paul Ryan's Super PAC and the Koch brothers are investing because they know this is literally the link to the majority. Right, right. Well, <laughs> then we definitely need to get, get some support behind you. So thank you again and have a great rest of your day. All right. Thanks so much. You too. Bye-bye. Our guest today is Betsy Dirksen-Longdrigan. She is running for Congress out of Illinois' 13th District. We are so happy to have her today. So, Betsy, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So I want to ask you first off about health care. And health care has sort of been this signature Democratic Democratic Party issue. And I know it's a very personal issue for you. So can you tell me your uh, what happened in your interactions with healthcare? Um, sure. So my husband, Tom, and I are both born and raised uh, here in Springfield, which is in the heart of the 13th district. And we've raised our three children here. And nine years ago this summer, when our, my oldest son was 12, um, he was bit by a tick and developed Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is a very rare tick-borne illness. And, um, and then he became septic. And so we spent 21 days with him in the pediatric intensive care unit of our children's hospital. And it was terrifying. They ended up having to do surgery on him and then put him into a medically induced coma. And he had a ventilator that was breathing for him. And he was actually read last right, not once, but twice. And that medical team saved his life every minute of every day for so long. And we're just incredibly fortunate because at the end of that, we were able to take our boy home and his brain is perfect and our life got to move forward. But it is never, ever lost on me that if we had not had access to good care, I would be a mom of two and not three. And if we had not had good insurance at the time, it would have bankrupt our family. I mean, when we got home, we were ready to 
you know, exhale uh, for a minute, and then the bills started coming. And it's almost paralyzing when you have medical costs like that. Uh, but thankfully, we had good insurance, and that saved us. And then with the ACA, they lifted the caps, and that continues to save our family. You know, and I have now put over 55,000 miles in my car getting around our district, and we just completed our 14th town hall. And I can tell you that the only thing that makes our family story unique is that it's ours. Because every family has their own health care story. And it really, you know, it, it becomes very personal very quickly with people. Yeah, yeah. And, and health care is, is very, it's so personal. It's kind of one of those odd issues that it, it's so intimate. It's about your health and your family's health. And that can make it a very emotional subject. It is. And it cuts across, you know, it cuts across. Any, any line that, you know, that would stand to divide us because particularly at the town halls, it's Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians. I mean, who, they're all open and free to the public and it's whoever wants to show up and have a conversation. And, you know, these issues like pre-existing conditions, right? Pre-existing conditions don't pick political parties. Right. Exactly. And so healthcare really is a unifying uh, you know, uh, issue for all of us. And I'm running against a guy who has voted time and time and time again to repeal the ACA, you know, and 11 times he voted for to repeal the ACA with no replacement, which would effectively gut protections for people with pre-existing conditions. And he was one of the men celebrating on the White House lawn when they passed the Trump care bill out of the House. And that was my tipping point for getting into the race because I thought, you know, people standing there celebrating this, either they don't know or they don't care what families go through. And I do know and I do care. And I'm getting in this fight to stand up for all of us. In Illinois, do you have do you have good ACA coverage or is Illinois one of the states that sort of refuses to expand their ACA and Medicare programs? No, we are a Medicaid expansion state. Um, it's, you know, if you look at the makeup of our district, we have a real mix of urban and rural areas. And so as we talk about how to improve access to quality, affordable health care, you know, what I want to do is first, I want to fix the ACA. I want to make sure that we fix what's broken because it's GOP and Congress is doing everything they can to destabilize it. And so I want to make sure that we fix it first and look at it as a first step and figure out how to move forward. And one plan that's out there that I think would be great, particularly for our area, is to offer Medicare as a public option and to start that in the rural communities and with small business owners. Because what I hear from people as I move around the district is that particularly in our rural areas where providers have left the market, then it causes premiums to go up and it becomes very expensive. So, how, you know, so um, adding Medicare as a public option would help to drive those costs down and make it more affordable for people in those areas. And I hear the same thing with small business owners, you know, who say, Betsy, I, 
would love to be able to provide health care for my, you know, for my employees or even, you know, they have trouble getting it for themselves. And this would be very helpful to them. So I I have sort of an odd question, but, you know, you said that the person who's currently representing this district has voted to repeal the ACA without replacement and was celebrating when Trump care was passed. Why? And obviously, like we were just talking about health care kind of cuts across all party lines. So why do you think it's so important to the GOP and your representative in particular to repeal the ACA? You know, that's a that's a great question. I think in, you know, in my particular case, first of all, it's a party line vote. Right. And uh, and it's, you know, he my opponent, Rodney Davis, is very he's taken a lot of money from big pharma and doesn't want to see any of those, you know, any of that compromise. And I also think that, um, you know, he's one of the he, he refuses to do town halls. And has, you know, has said, why would I, you know, why would I meet with people who disagree with me? I mean, that was the gist of his, uh, his statement, you know, to which my answer is, well, that's the job. If you're trying to rep- if you're asked to represent people, then you represent everybody. But I think there's a real disconnect there because I, the reason that I know that healthcare is an overarching concern for people throughout the district is because I'm standing in front of them. And a funny thing happens when you stand in front of groups of, you know, of your neighbors and and your communities and you ask them what they think and you ask them what their priorities are. They tell you. And that's how I know that we are, you know, that we are thinking the same way and that our priorities are, you know, protecting health care because I'm asking and they're telling me. Right. In addition to health care, what are your top priorities if elected? What, what is what, what else in your district that having these town halls, talking to your neighbors, what what else are they concerned about? Well, they you know, we really uh, we've got a lot of universities and community colleges and private colleges here in the 13th district. And so making uh, making a secondary education more affordable and and getting rid of some of these hurdles that students face is really important to the people in the district because not only is it, um, you know, is it the right thing to do, it's also a huge economic driver in the district. We want to make sure that we're taking care of our education system and our health care system. Um, together, those two systems make up over a third of our jobs here in the 13th. And so making sure that students can refinance their student loans, that we make them more accessible, um, expanding public student loan, public service for student loan forgiveness programs, and also making sure that we are talking to kids at a much earlier age about their options, because there are great options with apprenticeship programs and vocational training. And our community colleges, are they have fabulous programs that they work on in coordination with four-year universities. And so making sure that we are expanding the dialogue around educational opportunities is really important. And then infrastructure. And this is an area where I frequently am asked, you know, how will you work with, uh, you know, with both sides of the aisle? And I've, al- and I've always said, and I'll continue to say, that I will work with President Trump. I will work with anybody on bringing infrastructure dollars back to the 13th district because in our area, 
of course, it's roads and bridges, but it's so much more than that. It's our waterways that need to be widened and deepened. It's our electrical grids and our, our water lines that need to be modernized. And we still face the digital divide here in our district that needs to be bridged. And so we have huge infrastructure needs. And I'll work with anybody to bring that, bring that back here and get it going. Because those are great jobs that can't be shipped overseas. Right, right. Yeah, so I think my my last question for you is what, you know, we, we kind of touched on this and you gave me a, definitely a couple of really great priorities, but what is an issue in your district that doesn't get national attention but is really important to the people who live there? Well, I think that because we're here in central Illinois and as you drive around our district, you drive between soybean fields and cornfields. I think what, what sometimes what people are missing is the human factor of how these tariffs are affecting real families and their real lives. Because, you know, for example, I was at um, a town hall and a woman approached me and she was near tears and she said, Betsy, I have my family's sesquicentennial farm. It has, my family has been able to hold on to our soybean farm for, you know, through the Great Depression and through every economic downturn. And these tariffs are killing us. And so now every morning when she wakes up, the first question she asks her husband, who does the books for the farm, is, am I going to lose my family's farm today? And those are the real-life implications of what's happening on a national level. And I think that gets missed in the, you know, in the media, is that these are, you know, that farming and agriculture are a way of life for people in, in my community and in my district. And this is having serious implications on their livelihoods. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and, you know, talking about health care. I think it is like I said, it's kind of the signature Democratic issue that is so personal. I, I feel like it gets talked about very oddly in the media. <laughs> but yeah, but thank you so much and good luck on the campaign trail. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Our guest today is Dr. Kaiser Enneke. She is running for Florida Senate out of the 8th District. So, Dr. Edda King, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Well, Devin, I'm happy to be here, and please feel free to call me Kaiser. All right. Well, thank you. So, I, I want to jump right in. You are a practicing physician uh, running for State Senate, and so I really want to talk to you about health care, which is such a signature Democratic issue. And I feel like the first thing that's worth mentioning is a lot of politicians are obviously not practicing physicians and they're but they're making medical policy. So I feel like there's a real disconnect there. Absolutely. Uh, you, you know, I have been a practicing physician for 30 years. Um, I'm an anesthesiologist. And what's interesting about that is that means I rove all over the hospital um, and, uh, and actually out into the clinics. And it's uh, um, so I see patients kind of at all stages of their care. And um, I really have watched as over the years our systems have gotten so difficult to navigate for everybody, 
Uh, and healthcare really is an enormous problem that this country needs to come to grips with. Um, the Affordable Care Act, I think, was greeted by open arms by the medical community just because it was a step in a direction. Um, and just think of where we could be today if instead of trying to pick it apart for the last eight years, we've just tried to make it better. We know that the, the fundamentals of it uh, were a good start um, in terms of being able to decrease the amount of people that are uninsured, uh, but we, there's so much more that we could do, and, uh, and we need to move further. Um, but instead, we've, we've moved backwards, and that's what, that's what got me to run. I just, I really feel like we need to have an adult in the room. And because I have this perspective on, on healthcare, um, and I really have the perspective, I think, quite frankly, from the patient's perspective. Um, and what I say to all my doctor friends when I go to talk to them about this is, um, I'm going to go to Tallahassee and I'm going to advocate for patients because happy patients make happy doctors. Right, You don't right. have to spend the first 10 minutes of every visit apologizing for the system, then everybody is, is much better off. Yeah. I, I like what you said about picking this this uh, the ACA over and not making it better because I feel like with most legislation, it's passed and then there's an assumption or understanding that you are working to make it better, not pull it apart at the seams. And so... Exactly the opposite of what's happened with this with this bit of legislation, and and believe me, we need we need healthcare reform. We we need it today even more than we needed it, you know, ten years ago. Uh, healthcare today is about a fifth of our economy, and it drives the other four fifths of our economy. And we need to figure out how to get more people covered, how to get their care earlier in their healthcare processes, meaning um, if you have diabetes, we need to make sure that you are diagnosed and you get put on meds as quickly as you can and that those meds are working for you before you get all the complications of diabetes. Um, because once, once a, a chronic disease like that has not been treated, it's incredibly difficult to ever go back and get that level of health. Well, and I, and I feel like there are healthcare. I, like you said, it's a fifth of the economy and it drives the other four fifths of the economy. And I feel like that is really apparent in how many intersections there are with the healthcare industry. I mean, medicine is, you know, it has kind of its hands in education, infrastructure, class, race, all of these different things really are at cross together at medicine and and so absolutely and, and at health and health outcomes right and health that's a good way to put it so uh, one thing that i know that you are really passionate about is the like uh, a telemedicine um and yeah. that, that requires more infrastructure and internet access and all of these things that when you think about healthcare you don't necessarily think about these other structures that need to be in place so telemedicine, let me give you a great example. We just went through the worst flu epidemic that we've had in 25 years at least. Um, and, and what I saw at my hospital was that people would come and they would sit in our ER. They wouldn't know exactly, you know, they knew they had the flu, 
but it would, they sat there and they sort of shed viral products all over everybody, and everybody got sick. The nurses were sick. The doctors were sick. Everybody, every, the staff were sick. Everybody. And, uh, and wouldn't it be nice if the next time we had one of those flu epidemics, if you could sit on your couch in your PJs, Skype with your doctor, and get your Tamiflu delivered to you? I mean, it's, it's just, it's, that is not utopia. We, we could be doing that today, but we don't have the system set up for it, and we don't have the infrastructure set up for it, particularly in my district. I mean, if you live in a really cool, hip place, you, you don't even think twice about Internet. It, it's like turning on the lights or, or having water when you turn on the tap. But in, in lots of parts of this country, Internet uh, is just not that available, and particularly in my district where I live. And so that's one of the things that I really need to advocate to make people understand that that is as basic as electricity and water. And, and again, I feel like most people don't think in order to get the best health outcomes and to get the best care, you need basic infrastructure. Um, I I do also want to take a minute to focus on this intersection of class because I talked to two other women who are running for office and I I picked them specifically because one uh, couldn't afford the birth of her child and literally had to sell personal items to pay her bills. And the other had good insurance and uh and and was and that was a great support system and her son was very very sick and she saw firsthand how complicated the healthcare system can be and so i feel like those are two unfortunately common situations so how can something like medicaid expansion or other reforms help alleviate some of this this disparity in, in coverage and how we pay for health care? Okay, so let me just start by saying I wish I had a magic bullet that I could tell you in 10 seconds was going to fix everything. Clearly, I don't. But um, those two examples are really great examples of, of how we could change the system. With Medicaid expansion, um, that woman who couldn't afford health care uh, to have her baby would clearly have been covered uh, by Medicaid. Um, Medicaid uh, expansion allows for people, right now the only people who can get Medicaid are people who are at 100% of the federal poverty level. Um, Medicaid expansion allows that to move up to 138%, which for a family of four is an income of about $39,000 a year. So it goes from about a family of four of having an income around $24,000 a year to almost $39,000 a year. And so it, that's, a, that's a huge swath of people in this country. And in Florida, that's 800,000 people that would be covered by that. And, and one, of the, yeah, one of the things that we find with Medicaid expansion and some of the academic studies that they've done looking at it um, is, is that when people get Medicaid, it alleviates uh, this enormous uh, stress about about their finances. It's it's the financial strain that med- one of the is one of the best outcomes of of Medicaid expansion. Um, the and then what happens when more people get care and they get care in a timely fashion and they get care early on and they get care more locally. So in my district, it takes about two and a half hours to to drive across the district. And it's a, it's a huge amount of, of rural areas that just there isn't a hospital nearby. There isn't a doctor nearby. Um, but we could create more local 
uh, uh, care areas where they could get subacute care, like say if you had an asthma attack. Instead of driving an hour and a half to a hospital, you could have that taken care of there. Um, and by doing that, that then decompresses our emergency rooms in our, in our other facilities. Um, and so it will allow people to go in earlier. So if you have an asthma attack and you can get it taken care of at an early stage, um, you may not require hospitalization. But if you have to drive an hour and a half to get to the hospital, you wait until you're really bad in your asthma before you decide that, that you need to go. And then you end up getting admitted to the hospital. So we end up getting overcrowding in our hospitals, overcrowding in our emergency rooms. And so for them, the people, who, the, the woman whose child was really sick, she gets to the ER and it, it's full of these people and not all of them need to be there. Um, or the hospital is overly full, and they're overly full because they've got patients there who waited too long to get some basic care. Um, I'm going to tell you a story about my nephew. He's given me permission to say this. Um, he's, he's a great guy. He's a carpenter. He pays $700 a month for health, in, health insurance. Uh, he got, had an accident at work, and he had to go to the hospital. He had to pay $2,000. To, to have this little wound washed out, and uh, meaning they, you know, they cleaned all the, the dirty stuff out of it and sewed up. Um, he didn't have $2,000, but he figured out how to get that paid. Um, when that wound got infected, he didn't want to go back to the ER, so he tried to treat it himself. And what ended up happening was he instead waited too long. He ended up being hospitalized. He needed an operation and five days of antibiotics. Is, is that really the way we want to do healthcare in this country? It, it doesn't right. make any sense. It, yeah, it really doesn't. And, and so I, I think a huge part that I've seen of this wave of women, in particular running for office, is there's this sort of feeling of, like you said, there's this problem. We're not fixing it. Nothing is, is fixing it. So I'm just going to do it myself. And you bring, exactly. <laughs> like, I, you know what? Fine, I'll do it myself. And you bring this, this, you know, medical experience and, and, and all of, all of that. You know, part of it, I think, is that women bring such right. a different perspective. Um, I've been the only woman in the room for a long time in my career. And I'm the one in that group. When I don't understand something, A, I'm not embarrassed to say, I don't understand this. Can you please explain this to me? Um, that invariably gets a, a, a round of eye-rolling from the men in the room. But you know what? They right. don't understand it either. Right. And, uh, and, uh, and then we end up having a, a hearty discussion about a topic that, that they learn more about, I learn more about, and we can then have a basis for, for having a discussion. Um, and, and I think it's just a, a wonderful attribute that many women are completely comfortable with, um, you know, of, of, trying to make sure that they understand the issue, come up with solutions for it, and, and they're not afraid to try stuff. We've been having to try stuff our whole lives, right? So is there a, a way to, you know, obviously it's amazing that you as a practicing physician are running and, and throwing, you know, your your knowledge and expertise behind this, but is there a way to create a better system for making something like medical policy with people who might not have that background but are serving as elected officials? Um, let me see if I can give you an example. Our state legislature 
this year, um, changed how they will pay for the care of a patient that occurs prior to them receiving a diagnosis that would allow them to get on Medicaid. So, for example, um, a patient who's 30 years old doesn't have any health insurance because, of course, nothing bad ever happens to 30-year-olds, right, or they couldn't afford it, um, has a lump in their leg. They go to the doctor. The doctor says, hmm, I'm not sure what this lump is. Let's take an x-ray. They look at the x-ray. They decide, oh, you need to go to a specialist. So now they go to a specialist. The specialist says, hmm, you need an MRI. Now they get the MRI and they say, hmm, you need surgery. So now you have surgery. They do a biopsy. And a week later, you find out that you actually have a cancer. Well, what the, state, what the law used to be is that all of that workup and trying to figure out that you had cancer used to be paid for. They've this year changed it so that you only will pay for the stuff that happened in that calendar month when you got wow. the diagnosis. Now, this will save the state about $90 million, but I think the downstream effect will be much more costly. You'll have many more medical bankruptcies, and the care that that patient can't afford to pay for because they couldn't afford insurance to start with is now going to be paid by everybody else because the hospital will have to figure out how to get that paid for. The, the doctor's offices will have to figure out how to get that paid for. And that's part of the reason why medical care is so expensive for everybody else. I really, really, really think that if I had been there and I had been able to explain to the state Senate that the downstream effect of this is going to be much more costly because cancer doesn't have a calendar. I really think I could have made a difference in that discussion. And I don't think that there are enough people who have kind of my understanding of how the system works to really be able to, to make that, that pitch both on an emotional level, but also on a fiscal level. Um, and I just think that, uh, you know, it brings a, a very different perspective. Yeah. Well, Kaiser, thank you so much for sitting down and answering all these questions. It's It's been so illuminating. And, you know, I, I am so happy that people like you are taking up this gauntlet and saying, okay, <laughs> I'm going to fix it. <laughs> uh, well, you, know, you know what? It is, it, is, it is a privilege. It really is. And I think for many people, particularly women, there's often sort of a, a quicksilver time in your life when you can do it. And I'm, I'm very, extremely proud to be doing this. I'm extremely um, proud of the campaign that we've been able to run, but I am really proud to be a part of this cohort of women and to, to, to be, you know, the role model out there. Not that we haven't had some, but I think with this wave, we are going to have all these little girls looking up and going, yeah, I can do that. There's no reason I can't do that. Um, and, and that's, that's really the reason for doing this just for that, for that next generation. Well, good luck on the campaign trail and thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, good luck in November. We're in the sprint portion of, of the midterms. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Candidate. It is inspiring that so many women have signed up to run and are running and they're winning. They've won their primaries and they're headed into November with great campaigns, great ideas, and a desire to lead. Candidate Real Conversations with Women Running for Office is a production of Hellbent Media. 
is produced by me, Devin Handy, Varsha Venkat, Christina Reynolds, and the entire team at Emily's List. You can find more information about these candidates at emilyslist.com or at hellbentmedia.com. You can follow us on Twitter at hellbentpod or at Emily's List. Tune in every week to hear more stories from our future elected leaders.